we have found ourselves over the past few weeks in a study in the book of James. And I don't know about you, but this material, this passage, these passages have been uh, quite helpful in my life, quite convicting. And we started last week, as we started the new year, a brand new study regarding the sin of partiality. A study that I'm calling the problem of partiality, and we're talking about partiality, playing favorites, favoritism within the church. And we started last week in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I want to read that for you by way of review because it really set the tone for everything he's going to say in the next few verses, which we're going to spend a few weeks on. And clearly, it's an important issue, and clearly, it's a big problem, as it was in the early church. So it is, perhaps, in different ways, in different measure today, if not actually regarding a visitor to our church, but in our own hearts, the sin of partiality. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 2, which we saw last Sunday. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And again, by way of review, we saw the foundational issue here. Though probably hypothetical, there is something like this happening within the early church. And you remember that the people that James is writing to are Jewish converts to Christianity. Now, this is a time when Judaism was very prominent. This was a place where Judaism was very prominent. Outside of Judaism, probably the only bigger religion would be that polytheism, the Roman polytheism or Greek polytheism, uh, Zeus, Aphrodite, all of those different gods and goddesses that we learned about in high school. And that was a very real thing. It wasn't just something that they, they made movies about back then. They were actually worshiping them. So in certain cities, there would be temples all over the place. Most people would have been religious. The majority of people would have been religious in some way, attending temples or attending the synagogue. Or now, since Christ had come and risen again and ascended into heaven, attending a local church. And so there's a lot of Jewish thinking among these believers, they are born-again Christians, but you have to understand, as we are reading, they are existing and trying to live out their faith and pursue Christ just a few years after Christ actually was there. And so a lot of Christ's teachings have yet to be written down. The scriptures, the New Testament, are still being written, they're still being revealed to the writers by the Holy Spirit. And so they're really kind of figuring this thing out Thankfully, they had the apostles who were teaching them and were receiving revelation. But then you also had the fact that for some of them, until just a few days ago, they were steeped in Judaism, going through all the motions, memorizing, reciting, going to the synagogue, doing the offerings, doing the annual feasts and celebrations. 
And so even within what was commanded in their Old Testament scriptures, they were now also following what was extra biblical, the types of things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which Jesus Christ himself condemned, had put into place as burdens upon the shoulders of God's people. And so on top of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, they had all of these extra rules that had been written over time. And you've heard me say this before, not that I'm excusing or, or trying to uh, aid those who Jesus clearly condemns, but you can see how well-meaning rabbis, well-meaning teachers of the law were trying to help them. And then it just became this burdensome, corrupt system of making money. Well, rabbi, I'm not to work on the Sabbath. Well, but my donkey fell in a well. Isn't that work? Because I'm a farmer. This is my, essentially, that was his tractor. Is that fixing a tractor on the Sabbath? And so they said, well, okay. And then they started making more rules. Well, what about this though? The donkey can't survive. It broke its leg. So I have to get him out on the Sabbath. And so more rules and more rules. And so you can see how it may have started with good intentions, but it became dozens, hundreds, thousands of burdensome rules, which ultimately lifted up the Pharisees and Sadducees and others to a place of prominence and power and wealth. And you know what happens when people have that much power over entire people group. We see this in the life of Christ, or more specifically, the death of Jesus Christ. We see this in what they did to the Jews, with the Jews. But that's all they knew. And now Jesus Christ comes, throws all of that out, says, I have come and I fulfilled the law and the prophets. It's not just adultery, it's lust. It's not just murder, it's anger, our sins in the eyes of God. And so there's a lot going on here. And so what James is addressing is this partiality. And he starts out saying it is incompatible with your faith in Jesus Christ in verse 1. You can't have personal favoritism and hold strongly in the glorious, in your faith with the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then he illustrates this with this hypothetical situation. A rich man comes in and a poor man comes in. Back then, as you remember, you could tell. Not remember because you were there. Remember from last week. <laughs> you remember that you could tell from how they dress. You can't do that so much today, especially not in our area. But the rich people like to dress richly. And the poor people obviously could only afford perhaps one tunic and one undergarment. That was the way back then. Clothing was expensive. It was hard to make. You didn't have machinery. You didn't have sewing machines as we do today. And so you would just have a, one or two garments and it would get dirty. And so it was very obvious who was rich and who was poor. There is no poor person who could go to Louis Vuitton and cash out his entire paycheck and say, I want to look rich. That just didn't happen. They couldn't do it. And if you were wealthy, you definitely wouldn't walk around in stinking rags. And you remember this poor person was like the homeless of our day mismatched clothes, very smelly, very dirty, not even the resources to clean their clothing, possibly because it was their only garment. And so they couldn't walk around without clothing for a day or two, again, washing, beating, air drying, that kind of thing. So it would take a while just to clean clothes. The rich had gold rings. The rich had multiple garments. The rich would dress especially fashionably when they're out in public 
or going to a place like a church service, whether they're a believer or not. And he says, the problem isn't the rich or poor. There's nothing bad that he says about dressing really well, showing that you have wealth in church, or coming in smelly and dirty. He doesn't address that. What he addresses is the Christians who are in the church and how they address these visitors. The rich person is ushered to a seat up in the front, a nice seat. The poor person is asked to either stand in the back or sit on the floor next to the footstool. Now, to be fair, it was common back then to sit on the floor. Very common in the synagogues, common in the church. Again, most of these were house churches. You couldn't just go to Home Depot and buy a bunch of folding chairs that you put in your garage. They had what they had. So people would sit on the floor and there might be a few benches along the side. Some benches that they would, the family would eat at. But here's the point. If we had no room, if a visitor came in, I would assume those of you who are members or regular attenders of this church would stand up and say, here, take my seat. And in our context, go grab another seat for yourself or just stand in the back. They didn't do that with the poor visitor because he was poor. And what Jesus, what Jesus says or what James says, what Christ says through him, he says in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Even if they were trying to do what was good for the rich person. I want to treat him well. I want him to make feel comfortable. The reality is he did not do the same for the poor person. And so even with good intentions, he is making himself a judge with evil motives, preferring favoritism. It can be anything in our day, rich versus poor, color of the skin, their age, how long they've been a believer, how much they give to the church whether they're outgoing or not, whether you find them physically attractive or not, whatever it may be, we can do that in our own hearts and minds, and it may have no bearing on where they sit or how we greet them at church, but in our hearts, that's the big thing. In our hearts, how do you think of different people? And that was the backdrop. That is the foundation to everything that we are going to see this morning and in a few weeks following. We'll turn with me to our passage for this morning, James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And you have to understand what we just looked at in verses 1 through 4 to understand 5 through 7. He says, or continues rather, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now what we're going to see, although we can apply this to any sort of external, and that's very important, we're talking about what you see externally, judging people by the outside, we can sin by showing favoritism in anything that we see on the outside, mainly social norms, right? What is lifted up in society, what is considered lowly in society. But the specific issues he brings out here have to do with 
what the rich people are doing in that place, in that time, to the poor, namely to the poor Christians. So it's very specific, going back to the specific illustration and example of rich versus poor that we saw just a moment ago and last week. But even if it isn't rich versus poor in your heart, in your mind, in your judgments, there is much to learn here. And so in these three verses, I want to give you three contradictions in Christian partiality. Three contradictions in Christian partiality. The first is the salvific, the salvific contradiction, the soteriological or salvific contradiction. Look again at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did, God not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, the argument that James uses here is fundamental to our core system of belief as those who are saved. And its importance is emphasized by his saying, listen, brothers, in the middle of a thought. We kind of do the same thing today. You're talking with something. The topic hasn't changed. Someone says something that you disagree with or that sparks a thought and you stop and you say, listen. Right? You're trying to get their attention even though you're not changing the topic. And that's what he's doing here. It's the same thing that they did back then. Now look at the text. What is so important that he's trying to bring up here? He is appealing to the believer salvation. He is not using the argument that partiality is incompatible with God. He is specifically saying there is no partiality in God's plan of salvation. In your salvation. In how God chooses individuals in his choice, in his sovereign election. And he really drives the point home by telling his readers that God saved poor people. And there it is. The very class of people that James's audience is discriminating against when they enter the church. Say, so that doesn't really make sense. They are showing partiality in a way that hurts their own kind. And as the wordsmith that he is, James doesn't just say God saved the poor, but that God saved the poor to become rich. He says that he saved the physically impoverished to become the spiritually prosperous, rich in faith. Turn on the television when you go home and there will be false teachers who like to say rich and then stop there. Rich in faith. There is no promise of any change in the poor person's wealth in this life. The fact that God chose, as James says, is very important. Not just for the broad defense and understanding of the doctrine of election, but for the point that James is making and that God was not somehow forced to save the poor. Nobody nudged him and said, look, at, look how, look in your sovereignty, you made them just so hurt so much in this world, couldn't you at least make them rich in faith? No. No one forced him to do it. No one twisted his arm. No one could force him to do anything or twist his arm. He chose whom he wanted to save. He chose to save the poor. Not all the poor, of course. And that doesn't mean he's never saved anyone who's wealthy in this world. 
The point is, in that time, the majority of those who were saved were the poor. The poor of this world. So we understand that he's not talking about poor in spirit. Spiritually poor, he's not talking about the humble. He says poor of this world, meaning that they were poor according to the world's standards. They were poor. They were in poverty. Outwardly poor. And in that culture, as with so many since then, including ours, the poor are considered to be inferior in every way. Definitely not worthy of things like special favors, honored seats at church, or a kingly inheritance. But not so in the plan of God. In fact, throughout biblical times, with some exceptions, as I mentioned earlier, believers were poor. So much so that in the early church, the word poor became a term for the Christian pious while maintaining an accurate reference to their material poverty because they were godly, but they were also physically poor. We also saw in the context of James that a lot of these people became poor when they became Christians because they would lose their jobs. There was heavy persecution. There was a lot more violence against religious people that was allowed than would be in our country, perhaps still allowed uh, in this area today. But a fitting description, regardless of whether they were materially wealthy or poor, because we as believers put our trust in the Lord and not in earthly riches, not in finances. Now, what is it that God chose these poor in the world to be? Look at the verse. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, he promised to those who love him. Rich in faith simply speaks of the saving faith that all believers have. A faith that leads to salvation, perseverance, and eventually eternal life. It is synonymous or synonymous with this is the promise of the kingdom. This is the future coming kingdom. That has been initiated in the present among those over whom Christ is Lord. But ultimate fulfillment will be seen in the millennial kingdom and eternity. And in God's plan, his reign was realized in Jesus Christ. But will be full in its power and blessing in the future. Eternity future. And in that day, our high position in our glorified state will make clear the silliness of favoring the wealthy in this life. They will look poor compared to our glorious bodies and our eternal mansions. The time and place, the society, if you will, of eternity, will place no value on social priorities and classifications, but on the love of God seen through the granting of faith and kingdom. External social markers will not matter in heaven. Your race will not matter. Your marriage will not matter. All that matters is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things, rich, poor, tall, short, skinny, fat, whatever ethnicity, whatever it may be, that you feel as you go out into the world, 
you shy away from certain people, you hold your breath expecting those teenagers to laugh, you're scared because you don't think you're going to get a date with this person or that person simply because of some sort of external, granted perhaps based on your DNA, marker. Not so in heaven. In heaven, those things do not matter. And so, James is saying, why in the world would you put so much value on those things here? Why would that matter? You say, well, because I have to deal with it for another few decades. Decades, that's a long time. But again, the silliness of worrying about the length of days on earth will be highlighted a moment that even is even logical, a moment into eternity. Did you notice that little drop of water? Not all the rain, just that one drop of rain. Did you see that on the news? That one tiny drop of water that dripped into the Pacific Ocean? No, you didn't. That's what this life is in time compared to eternity. And even that picture makes no sense because you can measure, and people have, the amount of water in the Pacific Ocean. Eternity is eternity. There is no measurement. It just keeps going on and on forever. So, while the world sees only their stinking clothes and lowly position in society, we are to see, as much as possible, what God sees. We are to value what God values. An exalted state because of the promise of eschatological glory. And if this is true of tomorrow, what point is there to discriminate or despise today? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And again, we are talking about salvation, not that guy's salvation, but your salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, the things that are according to society. Verse 29 so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He saved you when you had nothing so that you cannot boast and say it was because of my works and accomplishments. And even if you had much in this world, you now know it was by the grace of God and that spiritually you are less than nothing. You are deserving of hell. And so we understand what this passage is saying and the beauty of God's plan of salvation. Now, this is not to say that in your job, when you're hiring someone, they come to you with a resume that just has four stick figures in crayon. And you say, 
you know what? These things don't matter. Eternal glory, you're hired. That's not what we're talking about. There is a street smarts, if you will, a practical worldly wisdom by which we exist and live in this world. Look both ways before crossing the streets, right? It used to be when you hear a car coming, don't run across the street. Now you got these Teslas buzzing by making no noise. Look both ways before crossing the street, right? Close your windows because it's raining. These are, this is not what we're talking about, right? There are certain things that keep the world in God's plan working. You're not a politician. We understand God is sovereign over politicians. He put, puts kings on their thrones to use as a sword to keep peace in this world. Does sin get in the way? Yes. Are there dictators? Yes. But for the most part, God has a plan for those external worldly things that keep things running. That is not what we're talking about. And I think you get that. So we're talking about our salvation. So on a more general level, we are reminded again that a biblical worldview is initiated and made possible by our salvation. A biblical worldview always existed, just not in us until we were saved. God and his word exists whether you are a believer or not. And it is only when you become a believer that his character and his commands become a reality that can dictate every aspect of your life, including how you view other people. Because of the all-importance of justification for the saved, we are given a powerful first step in having that biblical worldview. Look to your salvation. Not just in your personal testimony, but in all that it entails in regard to God's plan for your life, God's plan of redemption. And when we look at redemption, we see so much of how God wants us to live. We are to live in the way that he has exhibited towards us. Saved by grace, be gracious. Shown mercy, be merciful. Spoiler alert for verse 13. And saved without partiality, show no partiality to others. To put it another way, if God showed favoritism, I'm not sure who he'd save, but it definitely wouldn't be me, and it definitely wouldn't be you. So, as with all things pertaining to fellowship and loving your neighbor, do unto others, not only as you would have them do unto them, or what you would have them do unto you, rather, but do unto others as God has already done unto you. One of the frustrations for many Christians, I understand, in hearing such things is that we know we are substantially convicted by these truths, which makes it even more difficult when we can't practice these truths, when the nuances of real life in this world distract us from the promises of the next. Rest assured that God is aware of these challenges, the challenges that you face on a daily basis that also bring with them the tendency to forget our spiritual privileges as we try to master just surviving day to day. And this blessing of God's intimacy with us while still here on earth is assumed in James's next argument, 
which has less to do with big picture reality and everything to do with everyday social repercussions. Our second contradiction of, in Christian partiality is the social contradiction. The social contradiction. Look at verse 6. It says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich, is it not the rich rather who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Now, the dichotomy between how the rich and poor were treated in verses 1 through 4 is reintroduced. Again, the rich man get, being given the seat of honor in church while the poor man is asked to sit on the floor or stand in the back. It is contradictory to who we are even on a social level. This is because, as James says here, the rich in that society oppressed the poor. First, James says that the favoritism shown in the scenario in verses 1 through 4 treats the poor without respect. Again, completely normal in that society, but unacceptable among believers, especially unacceptable in the church. And as we saw last week, that is outright sin, any sort of partiality. Listen to Proverbs 14, 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the context of confronting the abuses displayed by that church at the Lord's Supper, Paul calls out the practice of the rich showing up early so that they could eat all this bountiful food with their rich buddies and not sharing one crumb with the poor. And Paul cries out in that chapter, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Favoritism is sin. And the idea of dishonoring the poor is not a casual ignoring or overlooking of the poor. Oh, I, I didn't see him there. It is a cognizant activity of pushing down the poor in order to favor the rich. If I could put it another way, when you favor the rich, whether you intend to or not, you push down the poor. And to use James's example, it wasn't that there were seats for everyone, plenty of seats, too many seats. And you grab the rich and say, hey, let me usher you to a seat and just leave the poor to find their own seat. They were specifically told, you don't get a seat. You sit on the floor next to me on my seat, because I'm not giving up my seat for you, or you stand in the back. And the problem that James points out is that by doing so, the Christians show preference to the people that are actually persecuting them as poor believers. Look how James describes the rich in the verse. They oppress you and personally drag you into court. Now, inherent in the ability to oppress anyone is the possession of power. And that's what that word means in the Greek. To exercise power against someone. To take your power and use it against another person. It also means to exploit or to tyrannize someone. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk, a lot of mention regarding oppression. You have many warnings of God towards Israel against oppressing people. Then later on in the history of Israel, you have him condemning those who have oppressed others. And when you look at the Old Testament, 
Oppression is usually against those who are lower in wealth and social standing in their culture, which of course goes along with the idea of using power against the powerless. Because the lower someone is in society, the less power you need to have to oppress them. And so it's easier to oppress those who have nothing, who have no say, who have no voice. And so you have in the Old Testament the oppression against widows, against orphans, against the poor, against the alien, and against the needy. Fast forward to James, and you have the same thing happening. The oppression of the poor by the rich. And what you see throughout the scriptures is a division between the righteous and the wicked, which tended to follow the division between the rich and the poor. The rich being the wicked, the poor being the righteous. This is evidenced here by the fact that the rich are dragging the poor into court. All over the world and throughout time up through today, the rich have had connections and abilities to take the poor to court and gain favorable outcomes and get even more money, squeeze even more money out of tenants and workers and customers. And this is the case that James is talking about here. The court is a court of law, a normal court of law. But drag indicates violence. This isn't just a minor tiff. We can't settle this, can't figure out whose property this fence is on, and so let's go to small claims court and figure this out amicably. No. They are oppressing. They are violently dragging, maybe not physically, but in some way forcing these people, perhaps enlisting the aid of Roman soldiers, to drag the poor into court to squeeze even more out of them, possibly using immoral and corrupt means to bleed them bleed out these already impoverished Christians. And since this is the case, James asks, why in the world would you give them special treatment in the church? These are the people that are hurting you. Why would you give them special treatment? Now, we need to be clear. He is emphasizing the foolishness of what they are doing. He is not saying, turn the tables and show partiality against the rich. That's important to understand. Now, as we move on, the absurdity of the favoritism is seen to a greater degree when James further unpacks what kind of people they are in verse 7. He writes, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And here we find our third and final contradiction the spiritual contradiction. We're looking at three contradictions in Christian partiality. We've seen the salvific, the social, and now the spiritual contradiction. To blaspheme means to slander or speak harshly of someone. When taken into the biblical or Christian context, it means to say anything negative or untrue about God or the scriptures. And we know that's what James is referring to here because the blasphemy of verse 7 is against, quote, the fair name by which you have been called. That, of course, is the name of Jesus Christ. And this name is not only seen in our confession of him as Lord, but also in our very title, 
Christian. And although, technically speaking, taking the Lord's name in vain is a form of blasphemy, what James refers to goes beyond that. It is speaking evil against Christ and his church. Here, a very real explanation for the harassment from the rich is revealed. They hate Christ. This is more than just the general hatred of Christ that is innate in unbelievers and their depravity, but it is an outworking of the prevalent persecution against Christians in that time. In fact, remember the Jewish background context here. Some of the rich oppressors for the Christian would have been the wealthy Jewish leadership, specifically the Sadducees, who would have already had a problem with this new and growing religion, with the special dislike of the Jews who have converted to Christianity because those used to be their followers, and now they're following Christ. And so you can see how they would want to turn up the heat on persecution, not of just the church, but now the church is robbing them of their followers, which in their minds robs them of their power and their influence. And so there's a hatred there. And so what do they do? Oh, in their minds, they uplift and worship and glorify the name of Yahweh, but they blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. You understand this between Jew and Gentile. They blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And we know this throughout the New Testament. We see glimpses of this in the epistles. We see this outright in the, in the gospels and the life of Jesus Christ and even the big cover-up and the lies that they, they perpetrated after Jesus' death and after his resurrection. They blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, we've all experienced this. When you can't get your point across, what do you do? You just start putting people down. Well, he's an idiot. He's too old. He does whatever, right? That's the last resort. And it's out of your anger and frustration and dislike. And these being unbelievers or faithful Jewish leaders, they truly did hate Christ. They reviled his name. They were disgusted by it. They were threatened by this new and growing religion called Christianity. They did not like it. We already took care of Christ and the church is still growing. Crucified on the cross, but their followers are growing in number. So what do you do? Beat them, drag them to court, throw them in debtor's prison, kill them if you can. Blasphemy. And so he's saying, when you favor the rich, you are favoring the very people who oppress you and who blaspheme your God. How does that make any sense? To connect this back to verse 6 by showing partiality, we dishonor those whom God honors and we honor those who oppress God and His people. By doing this in the church, they have made the church, Christians, have made the church an additional tool of persecution by unbelievers. Do you see this? The Christians have made the church a vessel of persecution 
for itself. Siding with the oppressor rather than the oppressed. Siding with the blasphemers rather than the worshipers. Siding with the devil rather than God. When it comes to our situation in our day, it's important to understand that the same principles apply Although, again, maybe not in regard to the rich versus poor or even visitors to church. It still comes down primarily to the fact that favoritism goes against the nature of God, specifically as it outworks in your salvation. But more practically, favoritism is wrong because it's based on social realities that have no place or bearing in the church or in the Christian life. So, this applies to favoring anyone, but especially when it comes to those who hurt the well-being of the church and blaspheme the name of God. I'm going to say this again because it's very important. Favoritism is so dangerous and so sinful, especially when it comes to favoring those who hurt the well-being of the church and blaspheme the name of God. Why do you favor politicians that are making it more and more against the law to preach the Bible? That what I say about life, Genders, homosexuality, is hate speech. And hate speech can land me in jail. Why show partiality to those people? I get it. There are dozens of political issues involved. There are other things. Yeah, I don't like that, but he does this and so... I vote for him. But you know, that was the case with the Christians in James's day too. The rich oppressors provided jobs. They provided stability in society. They paid for resources that the poor needed and used. But God and James and we do not care about those things. What we care about is what is important to God, and that is oppression and blasphemy. Why do you show partiality to the worldly wise when they bring in their traditions of men, their philosophy, the elementary principles of the world that take you captive? And I am quoting Colossians 2.8. Adding to the scriptures so you follow their ways rather than Christ, saying them a Christian, sprinkling in a few Bible verses here and there, but using worldly wisdom to fix your issues. You favor them over biblical counselors or even just Christian friends because you don't want to be confronted outright. And you say, the Bible, I get it. I love God, but the Bible doesn't help with this issue. But that guy does. Because he tells me that I can dislike this person, that I can blame that person, that I can, he won't use this words, but that I can sin against that person. And if that doesn't work, they got a pad and a pen and can write me a prescription. 
but he's a Christian, he says, and so it's okay. We favor those against those who teach and preach and share and confront and encourage with the Bible. Then we have problems. It goes back. Socially, you're okay now. In this world, you're okay now. But spiritually, you're worse than before. Even pursuing seemingly good and godly things is made sinful and oppressive when pursued in worldly ways that lead to a partiality toward the lukewarm or the unbeliever rather than the godly. Oh, this person's a Christian. They're going to help me with my social life, but the way they pursue that is ungodly. Oh, they're going to help me with, with dealing with my child's anger issues, but they do it in a world that way that's ungodly. No, no, I get that you're doing what the Bible says, but you've got you to gotta scare them. You've got to get mad at them. Let them go. Make them scared of you. And as a side note, that's why the world and the medical profession connects spanking with violence because so many people do it out of anger where the Bible says patience lovingly, you see? And we take what the world does and we say, well, this works. I take the Bible, take this psych psychological book on raising children, put them together, kid's great, going to Harvard. And again, you look at, well, what about eternity? Just a drop in the bucket. The list goes on. Beware of falling for what is attractive to the world, for it very well may lead to partiality toward those who damage the church and slander the name of Jesus Christ. Three contradictions in Christian partiality. The salvific, the social, and the spiritual contradictions. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to, to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for clarity in a real world situation in the early Christians of the damage that partiality can do. Father, we are so attracted to the powerful and the rich and the worldly wise. And I pray that we would turn to you. We would turn to the scriptures. If there's any favoritism or partiality in our lives, whether it's to make ourselves feel good or to make others feel good, fear of man, trying to benefit in our jobs, in the church, whatever it is, help us to see it and root it out. Give us the power to repent of it and give us the other end of the repentance that we might put on love and grace and a biblical worldview. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you stand with me as we close in song?